We are on uh, the Gospel of Mark, the book of Mark. Uh, my habit for 26 years has been to take a book of the Bible and to just teach through it from beginning to end. And sometimes that takes longer times than others. Uh, I think I've gotten through about 32 books in my 26 years that I've been here. We've been in Mark now for about a year and a half or so. And we'll just continue to work our way through it. We are in Mark chapter 11 today. And we are talking about, actually the text is not really talking about as much as just showing us the angry side of God. And I know that talking about an angry God tends to get people unnerved, if not agitated, (laughs) if not angry. And the only possible way that that can even linger in a person's worldview is if they are rather unaware of what the clear teaching and the clear demonstration of the Scriptures are from Genesis to Revelation. Frankly, I kind of like talking about an angry God. And you know why? No, it's not because I can use it to browbeat people or thump the pulpit or do a drive-by guilting. It, I know. It is because the more I am aware of the reality of the holy character of God from which his anger emanates, the more grateful I am for the phenomenal ways that he's attempted to reach me and to reach you and to reach all of mankind with the antidote to his anger. And that antidote has a name, and his name is Jesus. So a couple of weeks ago, this is the last time we were in the book of Mark, We spent a few minutes on the story of the fig tree. And just for the record, I want to just mention that it is a story of what happened. It is not a parable. Part of my purpose from day one has been not only to teach the word to you, but to help you understand how to rightly divide the word of truth for yourselves. And so I mentioned that, and I say this because I hear a lot of people and a lot of commentators or whatever referring to the parable of the fig tree. It's not a parable. A parable is a story that is made up for the purpose of making a point. This is not that. This is a recording of what transpired as Jesus was on his way to the next city with the disciples. So to recap, they're on the road traveling and they find this fig tree. And it turns out that the fig tree has no fruit on it. There's no figs on it. And so Jesus declares the tree to be worthless with respect to the reasons for which fruit trees and fig trees are created, and that is to bear fruit. Again, this is not a parable. What this is, is this is an object lesson. It's an object lesson which the Holy Spirit expects us to connect to the next vignette that we're going to start this morning, in what transpires in what will be an absolutely climactic week in the life of our Savior. The story of the fig tree is not about agriculture. It is about anthropology. And in fact, to be specific, it is about theocentric anthropology, which simply means theo from theos for God, centric, centered, God-centered study of man. And I like the way... The Westminster Confessions, if you're even you know, familiar with what that is, 
they ask a question, and the, the confessions go through a little question-answer kind of format. And the question that they ask pertaining to what man's purpose is, is one, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The Bible puts that, of course that's derived from the Bible, paraphrased. It derives from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, which says, Solomon writing, The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is why everybody exists, whether they acknowledge that or not. The placement of the incident now with the fruitless fig tree is that it sets up the next scene. But it's going to not only punctuate what upsets somebody as patient as Jesus, somebody as patient as the Son of God, but it also defines for us the intensity of the scene that we are about to witness. So we begin new material in verse 15 of chapter 11 of Mark. Then they, being Jesus and the disciples, came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. I have to say, however you read this, however you picture this transpiring, I tell you, Jesus is in a rage. Let me say it again. Jesus, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, is in a rage. Gospel writer John, writing of the same incident, gives us a little piece of information that Mark chooses to omit that is helpful. John writes in chapter 2, And Jesus made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. Now, it may not be a pleasant thought, but the one who is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, was angry enough to violently expel those who were insulting the very creator of the universe. As I look back on the life of Jesus, I mentioned a few weeks ago about some scholarly types get all cranked up around the axle of the historical Jesus and demythologizing and de-supernaturalizing all the miracles and everything else and just kind of looking, trying to come down to this kernel of, well, okay, if you want to take a real look at the historical Jesus, this is a great time to do it. There are three times in the Bible. The first time, as I look back, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus at the funeral of his friend Lazarus, and Jesus now here in the cleansing of the temple. They are, in my estimation, the most poignantly humanizing vignettes that we are given of the person of Jesus. And that helps us because it helps us balance the enigma of someone who was absolutely 100% fully God, but also fully man. At Gethsemane, We get a rare view of Jesus in in real consternation. We're privy to Jesus exhibiting the very real emotions of a man facing the promise of profound injustice, of one facing abandonment of his friends in his time of greatest need, of the future incomprehensible suffering that lays before him. 
And what do we hear Jesus say? God in human form, Father, if, if there's any way possible, this can be done some other way, let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done. I think about Lazarus and when Lazarus died. We're told of Jesus' response in just two words. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It simply says, he wept. Shortest verse in Scripture. I think that's even in the biblical edition of Trivial Pursuit. Despite raising Lazarus from the dead, only what's going to be in a few moments later, we see the depths of personal pain and of grief brought on in the words of Paul by the wages of sin, which is death. Death still has a sting to it, even for the Savior who is fully God and yet fully man, even knowing full well that he was there to conquer death once for all who would believe. So now here we are at the third example at the temple where we see a rip-snorting, angry Savior. And so yeah, the church the church needs to cut the sanctimonious showcasing by its ridicule and its disdain towards what I will call the real church when it reveals its anger towards either another Christian or towards another church or another denomination or a culture which prides itself on peddling its wares of perversion, prides itself on endorsing and supporting the murder of the innocents, and teaching others to embrace and bless unbridled fornication, pretending that it is in fact goodness, and thereby stumbling others, perpetuating a counterfeit view of the world, a manufactured Jesus that bears no resemblance to scriptures, and a false assurance that everything is great between them and the living God as far as heaven goes. This is important because there is in Christendom a very imbalanced idea that Jesus somehow, think, think about you know, some of the more stereotypical views of Jesus, even as you see him in, in, uh, acted out in various movies and what have you. See Jesus as the always imperturbable, the always stoic and robotically unemotional Savior whose reaction to anything and everything is just with this kind of ho-hum, very flat persona and Jesus at the end of it all somehow always exudes this sticky, syrupy kind of sentimentalism that gets conveniently interpreted as love. This is not what we're going to see here. Jesus is full of passionate anger. But his anger was never a self-centered anger. His was not an anger that was born out of being himself slighted. His was not an anger out of his being misjudged. It wasn't out of his being insulted or his being treated less than what he deserved. And this is a vitally important part to understand because when we get angry, it's generally because we believe somebody done me or somebody that I care about has done me wrong or done them wrong in some way, shape, or form. Additionally, James writes in his book by that name in the New Testament, 
chapter 1, verse 20, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But that doesn't mean that anger is necessarily wrong. In and of itself, anger is not an ungodly quality. Somewhere along the line, the church developed this picture of a pretty much emasculated Savior who only ever always turns the other cheek, who always greets hostilities with very fast and quick, oh, I forgive you. And this strained view of God gained traction because people of faith are not well versed in what it is their Bibles even teach which is one reason that from day one I have always encouraged the people that come into this church and who visit this church, I encourage them to develop the discipline of reading through the Bible on an annual basis for yourself. And don't misunderstand me. Take advantage, to be sure, of scholarship of others. But read the Bible for yourself. And if you do that, you will see that God gets angry. Go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Early on in the first book of the Bible, chapter 6, what do we read? We read what's called the flood account. Well, what brought on the flood? Better, who brought on the flood? God Almighty, the Creator, brought the flood on because He had become so disgusted with mankind in general that He basically just decided to cleanse the earth and start all over again. We go to the second book of the Bible. And in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, we run into two men named Nadab and Abihu who violated the express direction of God thinking that they had a better idea than God on how to properly worship Him. And what happened to them? It cost them their lives. The very phrase, the anger of the Lord, appears over 35 times in the Old Testament. And when we come into the New Testament, we are warned about anger becoming sin. Yes, anger becoming sin, but in and of itself, it isn't. And that's why the Apostle Paul gave his admonition to the believers at Ephesus. Writing in Ephesians chapter 4, 26, he says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let your sun go down on your anger either, and do not give the devil an opportunity by that unresolved anger. Which means it is possible to be angry, and we should be angry at things that make God angry. Now, admittedly, there's a big problem with that. And that problem is is that our anger, even probably at our best, with rare exception, is never pure what the Bible calls righteous indignation. But rather it's tainted with all our wonderful and glorious uh, imperfections of our fallen nature that are yet turned over to Christ. But when Jesus was angry, his was pure His was pure righteous indignation. And when he saw the defiling of the temple, which was his father's house, as it was called, he became enraged at the raw and utter disrespect for his father's house, which was tantamount to raw disrespect 
for God Almighty. And their disrespect for God came from the abundance of rotten fruit born out of their lives. We read about this not in the New Testament at its beginnings, but way, way back hundreds of years in the book of Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds. That means change. And I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, Oh, but this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For something to be repeated in the Hebrew three times is it's hard to describe to put it into to English, but it's like putting it in bold, underscoring it, and putting arrows on it to make it emphatic. In other words, they were using the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as just some kind of an excuse to be able to do anything and everything you want, as Jeremiah makes clear as we read through this. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you though are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal? Will you murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known and then, and I'll insert, have the audacity and the nerve to come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, oh, but we're delivered. We're delivered. You say that so that you may commit more abominations against me? Has this house, and this is where we're getting now what's Mark recorded, He goes back to Jeremiah. He's quoting part of it. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Now let me do something here. Let me take that now, and with some liberty, obviously, let me paraphrase it, bringing it in to a context that would make sense to our day. Sort of an analogous Uh, writing to today's church. And I use church in the broadest sense there, which includes, again, the real and the poser. You wear the name of Jesus and you claim your faith is biblical, yet embrace and instruct others to adopt godless mindsets and practice godless habits and all in the name of my son, your Savior, yet claiming you are delivered when in fact you bathe in the cesspool of Satan's domain and even deride, ridicule, and scorn those who try to live righteously. Do not think that you will be immune from my anger because you can toss around the name of Jesus like a good luck charm. Behold, I, even I, have seen it. These are sobering words to the church that wears the name of Christ today. Verse 17. And Jesus began to teach and say to them, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer? Remember what Jeremiah said. 
and a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. We need to go back yet again to the Old Testament, to another prophet, Isaiah, to get yet more background and informing theology of what Jesus was uh, alluding to in his statements in the temple. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from the doing of any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is on the scene, God, Jehovah, with his favored people, the Jews, is opening salvation up to everybody, the foreigner, even the eunuch, etc., etc., to anyone who comes seeking God in spirit and in truth. And they will not be turned out, they will not be cast away, and will not be called not God's people. Now keep this in mind as we go back to the temple. But remember the caveats that both the prophets have given. Amend your ways. Don't continue to live like hell and expect everything's going to be swell. It just can't get any clearer. No matter how many lucky rabbit's feet you think you may hold, no matter how spiritual You might appear, or you might even think that you are. Nobody approaches God on their own terms. Nobody approaches God on their own terms. Nadab and Abihu found that out the hard way. So here we are, we're in Jerusalem now, and it's the time of the Passover. The population of the city at the time of Passover would have swelled enormously. And so it was an opportune time for the hucksters to make a quick buck. See, some things never change. All the foreign currencies coming to the temple to buy animals for sacrifice in worship and to pay the temple tax had to be exchanged from the foreign currencies into the proper Jewish currency. And, of course, there was a surcharge tacked on for doing so. Now, that in and of itself would not have been inappropriate. But there was no regulation of any sort, meaning whatever the person demanded, you had to pay. And if you couldn't pay, you couldn't buy. And if you couldn't buy, you couldn't worship. 
In the process, the money changers created barriers to people coming to worship that God never erected. And they were ripping people off left and right. And not only that, but these robbers were all there with the blessing of the high priest and the rest of the spiritual leaders. Not only were the would-be faithful, those who came and pilgrimaged miles and miles to come and do the Passover, which, which was their, their joy and part of their life experience in being the faithful of God. Not only did they come in as being destitute, but they were made poorer because of the extortion. And as I said, some were not even able to afford the required accoutrements for worship, and so were prohibited from doing so. The Jeremiah passage and the Isaiah passage all point to the glories of the house of God, which if we extend that out is obviously an illusion, not illusion, an allusion to heaven. And his welcoming all, remember what Isaiah said, welcoming all, who come to worship him in spirit and in truth. But now here God is on the scene, up close and personal. And when he comes on the scene, he sees his own select people and the religious leaders, and they were the worst of the bunch. The fig tree is about God's people. Fruit trees were created to be a blessing to the nations, but were fruitless and therefore would be destroyed. Gospel writer Matthew says, quoting Jesus, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so God have mercy on the person or the culture or the institution that prevents one from accepting such an invitation. There is no temple today, not that equates to the temple of Jesus' day and the temple to the days of the Old Testament where it was the unique and only meeting place of Jehovah where in the Holy of Holies the Shekinah glory would come down, the visible manifestation of God and His holiness would visibly come down and meet at the temple with the people. That was all before Christ. And before, actually, to be technically correct, I should say, before the Holy Spirit had been given carte blanche, which did not occur until Jesus died and rose again from the dead, just as he said he would do. There is no temple today that relates to the temple of God in that day. Today, the closest thing to it is the church. But the church means us, you, if you are a believer in Christ, you are the church. It's not a building with a steeple. It's not a building with a crystal this or a crystal that. It's not an old movie theater. This is just the place 
And those buildings are merely the place where the church goes to aggregate to corporately worship the living God. Because when Jesus went back to heaven, he said he would send the Comforter, i.e. the Holy Spirit, who now takes residence within every believer. God dwelling with his people. It doesn't need a temple anymore to come down in the Shekinah glory. He indwells his people now personally. And what that means is that some of the silly attitudes that that, uh, I've been exposed to over the years with certain churches about the church building, making it sort of, not sort of, making it equivalent to the temple of the day and saying just silly things like, oh, no, we, no, we can't, we can't have coffee in God's temple. It's holy. And, you know, I mean, you just fill in any number of ridiculous things there. No, we don't have a temple today. We, what does Paul say? The Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. We are the temple of God today. So if you want to think about how does one defile the temple of God today, how much time do we have? Fortunately, we're out of time. But I tell you, if you think it does not matter for the believer who's indwelled by the second Father, Son, Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, who's indwelled by God as the living temple of God, if you think it does not matter what we take in to this temple, what we take in to this temple, what we take in to this temple, if you think that does not matter, you need to go back and understand what it means that we now are the temple of God. And yet, despite all of that, Jesus came because he knew that none of us could ever, could ever live up to the holiness that God demands. And so he came and he did it for us. He lived a life of absolute perfection. He took the penalty of sin, which is death, physical and spiritual, which means separation from God. He took that upon himself. But because he himself was sinlessly perfect, death could not hold him because the power of death is sin. Jesus had no sin. He paid the price and he rose from the dead. He goes back to heaven, sends his Holy Spirit, and now indwells with the people of God forever and all time those who have received that invitation. And therefore the anger and the wrath of a holy, sin-hating God who has not changed his standard, he has not watered it down. The same God that destroyed the earth to start again because he was so disgruntled to say the least about what mankind had become. That same God has not changed his standard. What he did was he came and he lived and fulfilled that standard on our behalf because if he didn't, 
all of us would be destined to an eternal separation from him in a very real place called hell. That is why I like talking about the anger of God, because I can then talk about the love of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, part of the triune Godhood. And because of him, I don't have to worry. I don't have to hope. I don't have to pretend. He just loves me the way I am, but he loves us too much to stay the way we are. And if we really are indwelt by that spirit, of God within us, we cannot stay unchanged. Otherwise, it's bogus and a counterfeit, and we were just playing a game and never really invited Christ into our lives. No, 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 no. If that is you playing the game, pretending, having just misunderstanding of what, well, now you know the truth. And the creator of the universe beckons you today to come unto him and start a new adventure with an assurance of salvation. John, 1 John 5.13 These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope or you may think or you may presume, but that you may know. And the invitation is yours. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves to try and figure it out, to try and work ourselves into a place of holiness that we could never do. Never, ever. We have been polluted from the beginning. So thank you for offering us, clothing us with the righteousness of Jesus. And thereby when we stand before you and you ask, why should I let you into my heaven? We will say, It is because of my Savior and Lord Jesus Christ who has given me his perfection, his goodness, his righteousness, which is unsullied. And you will say, enter your rest. Dear God, press it upon the hearts and people today that do not yet know you, that you wait to enter a relationship with them that will change their lives and their eternal future. In your name we pray. Amen.